everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Todd Shepard, the author of Sex, France, and Arab Men, 1962 to 1979. And the book was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2017. Hi there, Todd. Hello, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This is a really great opportunity. Thanks a lot for having me. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you came to work on France and Algeria? Sure. Um, So I'm a 50-year-old white man from the United States. uh, And when I was 16, I spent a year in France in high school as an exchange student. And I ended up first with a family in the north of France who ended up being Front National Mm -hmm. uh, and and racist and, and other things too. Uh, and I ended up not staying there for a very long time, but it did leave an impression on me uh, in some really key ways, sure. uh, notably about their fixation on so-called Arabs, uh, which just it was not an image that I had. So that that happened and it kind of gave me access to the French language. Uh, my French was quite decent after that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't kind of focus then on either French language questions or France, uh, French history in college. Uh, what really ended up drawing my attention were, you know, so-called French theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was very into uh, debates inspired by uh, cultural studies, Foucault, around Derrida. But in particular, a catalyzed for me was around a group called Act Up New York that was challenging the AIDS crisis uh, and fighting it and drawing on both imagery and language that for many people at the time resonated with things that were linked to these theoretical discussions, and notably around, you know, some of this became crystallized in a group that I belong to named Queer Nation, but more importantly, with what emerged in terms of queer theory. So the links for me were also crucial to my continued interest in things like feminism and feminist theory. But I ended up doing a, a, an intra, a kind of undergraduate thesis on ACT UP New York with historians. And then those historians suggested if I wanted to go on and pursue a history PhD that I should try to enter into, get into French history, because I had French, but I didn't really mm-hmm. have history. And I could switch back to American history and once I'd gotten in. To do that, I took some classes, uh, notably one with Louise Tilly uh, and Eric Hobsbawm on revolutions uh, at the New School. And I ended up working on, you know, it was the Algerian revolution, a French revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really what led me into this Franco-Algerian intersection I've tried to do more stuff on Algerian history, qua Algerian history recently. Uh, but this book, Sex, France, and Arab Men, it was very much within this Algerian histories of France uh, discussion that have intrigued me you know, since I began graduate school. So, Todd, I think most people who listen to this interview will be familiar with the book that came out of the PhD and the dissertation, The Invention of Decolonization that was published with Cornell in 2006. And listening to you talk about your whole trajectory, I kind of see them as a, as a box set now. Yeah. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about like how you see this book coming out of some of the things or tied to some of the preoccupations that you had in that first project? Oh, definitely. I mean, so at a basic level, plunging into the archives, and they were for the first book, very much institutional archives for the most part, although there was a uh, an attention to newspapers, uh, press coverage, uh, some other publications too. But I was uh, very much a kind of of that moment of trying to use cultural analyses inspired by the renewal of cultural history to look back at types of institutional political sources uh, that had been more attuned, more aligned with other historical subdisciplines. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, I kept running into this great stuff, like really stuff that intrigued me, uh, in which questions of gender and sexuality uh, were foundational, crucial, where things about masculinity in particular began to draw my attention. Some of this material did find its way into that first book. So the sixth chapter, which is about the pied noir, which was in part about how classic Orientalist tropes of deviant Oriental or Muslim or Arab masculinity were being deployed against people who were not North African or not Algerians. Uh, But I was also interested about how far left and far right, pro-army and critics of torture, people were deploying these stereotypes against each other. So both we know a lot about how the far right would accuse other people of being pederasts or homosexuals. The far left was doing very similar things. You know, people who are driven to torture because of 
failed masculinity, their desire to touch other men's bodies, etc. So that stuff found some of its way into that chapter. But I began to put a lot of the rest of it to the side. So then I began to just accumulate various other materials and kept thinking like somebody who's really good at doing real cultural history uh, (laughs) should do this. And then just decided I should do it. Like that I had both the theoretical anchor uh, and the interest uh, that had kind of led me into history as a discipline. Uh, And I really saw the French uh, and Algerian resonances. Again, this was a book that was really a French history book, uh, but I was really intrigued by the ongoing resonances. So trying to do work with the material that I was finding in the past that also seemed to me to really speak to some discussions in the present. So there's so much going on in this book, Todd, but at the core, the thing that you begin the book with and that runs throughout the project is this idea that we need to think uh, the history and the kind of aftermath of decolonization and the sexual revolution, so-called, we need to think these things together. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to that place in terms of, you know, the idea of thinking those two things together and how you see the book as a response to previous scholarship that that doesn't do that? Yes. So I think part of the story that really intrigues me uh, is not fully in the book. Um, that is to say, a lot of the stuff that was on the war itself during the revolution itself, uh, I kind of ended up cutting out. Mm-hmm. Some of that is in the preface or the introduction that I co-wrote to a book called Guerre d'Algérie, le sexe outragé, that I co-edited mm-hmm. and co-wrote the introduction with Catherine Brun, uh, that goes into some more of the details. But I was really intrigued by just the kind of consistent and incisive questioning that came from anti-colonial and, in particular, nationalist Algerian nationalist sources and criticisms of French projects around normalization that were about gender norms and about sexual norms and how they targeted these uh, as political. And as I suggest in the book, you know, I was, I mean, I I don't think these are necessarily radical claims uh, in terms of gender and sexuality. What they propose is reestablishing as, you know, real heterosexual marriage and normal ways of being men and normal ways of being women. But to me, this was really foundational. It suggested how much this politicization of what many people kept claiming was just a natural thing mm-hmm. or a kind of eternal thing about how men are men and women are women or how sexuality works is some of the central things that we think of the sexual revolution bringing to the fore, that these things are political right. and historicized and historical. This really crystallized for, and I, I see that really clearly in anti-colonial movements uh, as they responded to what we now call sexual orientalism uh, or other forms of sexual racism. In terms of the general historiography, you know, certainly I wanted to respond to the large-scale presumption that sexual liberation and the so-called sexual revolution happened in a transatlantic way, uh, that it was you know, between New York and Sweden, then there was Germany, uh, then there was California, uh, and we draw in some other spaces. Uh, and this has a lot to tell us, like other Americanization stories in a European history But again, the kind of exclusion of all of these actors Mm -hmm. who were of color, uh, who were anti-colonial, who were directly inspired by these things or some combination of those uh, different tendencies was just not getting what what it's due. Uh, And I think that's particularly clear in French history uh, when you look back at the evidence. uh, And I think there's some explanations of why that kind of evidence has been sidelined or not given much attention. And I also wanted to respond to a historiography that had taken on, you know, has fairly strong roots around the supposed absence of discussions or immediate effects in France of decolonization, so-called, or the Algerian war in particular, in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. Uh, so, you know, like on René Loubli, uh, the idea of trauma that supposedly resulted right. uh, from the violence, the extreme violence of the, of the Algerian war. These two seem to me to be inaccurate uh, and to minimize the continued role of the end of French Algeria, the Algerian war, and of empire in France. You know, so, uh, so, the, so those two big mm-hmm. historiographies about the sexual revolution on the one hand and about France after uh, what I call post-decolonization, you know, after Algerian independence, both seem to me to be missing out on how crucially Algerian actors, Algerian decisions and actions, and more broadly anti-colonial successes or challenges had really reshaped uh, or right. give definition to the sexual revolution as it took place in France, et cetera. 
let's talk a little bit about the the period that's covered by the book, the the bookends. That first date, 62, seems obvious, but I still want to ask you about it. And then 1979, if you could talk a little bit about the the framing of the project chronologically and in terms of the period that you're you're covering here. Sure. I mean, so in kind of broad, perhaps theorized frames, uh, 62, so the end of formal empire, uh, seemed to me important in a discussion around what is effectively an analysis of a form of sexual Orientalism, uh, as Edward Said kind of first mapped out in Orientalism. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, 62 was important because in the work that I'd done, you know, while preparing the first book, one of the key things I saw was how intently people, French people are using sexual orientalist tropes or accusations against each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, in the book, I talk a little bit about accusations of, in, in all of the far-right press, the summer of 1962, the handover uh, from, to, from French forces to FLN forces of control in various parts of Algeria are described as camouflaging this, the real gangrene, la gangrene to this term that had come to such prominence because of torture. Uh, right. There was a real gangrene, which was the rape of French soldiers uh, by FLN forces. This was being hidden. There were other than quite intense deployments of sexual orientalism to describe North Africans and partly to reaffirm distinctions between French and Arab, as we might call them, or they, they called them French and now Algerians, that the OAS and the far-right forces that had supported it and other defenders of Algérie Française had rejected. You know, they'd insisted Algeria and France were the same. Mm -hmm. so, so it makes sense. So those two things, I mean, both in terms of speaking to a larger historiography or discussion of the end of sexual orientalism, uh, and then this particular intense reformulation of claims around what we could call sexual orientalist terms by the far right, by defenders of Algerie Francaise, uh, right at the war's end. Uh, and then 1979 uh, was somewhat more complicated uh, in trying to figure things out. Um, right. But it came to seem obvious to me for a series of reasons, in part, and, and a lot of these reasons, the, the, the emergence of the Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution in Iran, that is in a non-Arab country, uh, crystallized them and made, just, it made it seem to have so much sense for me. And that is, I'm particularly throughout the book interested in these two big dynamics uh, around what I call the, the erotics of Algerian difference, one that emerges on the far right. And I've begun to evoke that, uh, and it's quite intense. Mm -hmm. And it resembles, in many ways, things that we would recognize today uh, uh, around accusations often leveled against Muslims uh, right. about forms of supposed aberration or deviance and danger. The second, however, so we could talk more about that, but the second emerged uh, a little bit later, but even during the 60s, even during the war itself, uh, more of a on the on the left, on a certain left, mo notably forms of the far left, uh, particularly those that are distinguishing themselves from the Communist Party, so-called new lefts of various types. Some of them will become third worldists. And this is a real celebration. So it's the Arabophilic or the Islamophilic version of Orientalism, of sexual Orientalism. Again, this has always been the case. There have always been people, the Richard Burton in the 18, in the nineteenth century, and others you know, who celebrated Islam or the Arabs or the East uh, as places where things are better. The West could the West could learn things, uh, but I was intrigued by the particular forms that this took, uh, that are somewhat encapsulated by the idea of the Arab Revolution, uh, that they seemed you know aware or insistent these these celebrators supposedly of a heroic Algerian man, the historical specificity and the political implications of this heroic role. Uh, and so it is a, it's a two-dimensional role uh, that is deeply problematic. Uh, and what it, so 1979 really for me is the tail end of its disappearance. Uh, I see this, I try to trace out how this vision uh, is both deployed particularly in the 1970s, mm -hmm. uh, and goes into crisis. Uh, first, I look at this, how this happens uh, in among so-called gay revolutionaries or uh, gay sex radicals, as some might call them, uh, and then around feminism, uh, and particularly debates around sexual violence. And, there, and there's also, this happens in several other moments in the book, but how these claims of political revolutionary possibilities uh, and this possibilities of alliances, of coalitions, uh, Come into crisis, and so for me, by 1979, this is really this this vision encapsulated by the heroic Algerian man is no longer really imaginable. The idea that, in particular, 
feminists or gay liberationists or gay rights activists would look to Algeria, look to North Africa, look to the, uh, the Arab world uh, as a source of inspiration and a model for how to change the West or France, it becomes unimaginable. So that's where 79 really made a lot of sense to me. And also it allowed me to kind of put a stop and there's just, there was so <laughs> much evidence. <laughs> that it- sure. So because it's come up a few times already, I guess I want to ask about the kind of conceptual and terminological use of Arab. Already in this conversation, we've both said things like Algerian, Arab, Muslim, or Islam, uh, and then North African. So I'm just wondering if you could say something about the way that Arab works, well, throughout French culture, I guess, as both Mm -hmm. correct and incorrect terminology. And then your choice of Arab men rather than Algerian men, rather than Muslim men, like what is that? What's the significance of using Arab here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the context, obviously, is that there's much debate and many problems with the use of such a term, notably in reference to North Africa, particularly to Algeria. Right. Um, you know, we know about uh, the so-called Berber myth. We know about the, the fact that uh, North Africa, Algeria, etc., has people of many different origins, uh, diverse and multiple uh, that the Arabic language has diverse and multiple forms, that Amaziot and other forms of identity and language, Tamaziot, that these two really matter. So it's not at all an effort to be descriptive uh, or right. either ethnological. It emerges at its heart from the documents. Uh, that is to say, there's just such a heavy use of the term. It's all over the place. Uh, and one of the things mm-hmm. that I explicitly argue is when people are talking about Arabs, they are constantly talking about Algeria and Algerians in the period that I'm using. But to fully grasp that, and many of my examples show that, uh, it needs to expand outward. Everything gets drawn into Algeria. Uh, And so not everything, of course, but many, many things. So I was caught up in this and the dynamics that explain this kind of broad web, I think, uh, which is why why it's Arab rather than people of color or the formerly colonized or Maghrebis, etc. This Algerian how that's being referenced through the term Arab is something that I try to mark out explicitly in the book yeah. uh, and particularly to distinguish it from Muslim, which again is not a term, not a reference. Uh, right. And here, unlike I think in my first book, like I was far, far more attentive to questions of religion, mm-hmm. uh, but I still just saw strikingly little. Uh, so those are some of the reasons that I chose that word. I will say that I did agree to a request uh, by the editor of the English version not to put it in parentheses on the cover uh, whereas in the French version, it is. Uh, so that's a, you know, a choice that I huh. recognize was about readability and that has implications, I think. I guess when I was reading the book, one of the questions that came up for me was not only this issue of you know Arab, Algerian, Muslim, um, but also the way, and I could ask you about this later, but this is as good a time as any, I guess, the way that the Arab man as a figure in this book is or isn't connected to the black man in uh, a long, long-term history of, you know, hyper-masculinity, um, hypersexuality, all of those kinds of things. So do you want to say something about that now? Sure. Yes. I talk about the erotics of Algerian difference to mark this specificity of this moment, mm-hmm. it, but it's part of a much longer history. And so then the question becomes, how much can I bring in that history? So I tried to emphasize uh, some of the things that I saw as distinctive about this moment, the kind of right. deep fixation on Arab men, so-called. And so a lot of it was about the evidence. You know, I just didn't find nearly as much evidence about Afro-descendants, uh, people of Af- like which we would call our people, like black French people in France, uh, blacks in the, in the French imaginary, black men in particular, a hyper-virility. It's, it's not nearly as present. Hmm. In fact, it's very little present. Similar with so, you know, people from Vietnam, um, there's material, but I just didn't see that. I saw very little of it. So I was trying to figure out what do I do with how overwhelming the evidence is on this particular topic, how effectively to bring it into dialogue with these other historiographies. I did try it one around in one of the in discussions of rape to feminist U- discussions in the U.S. around African-American men uh, and questions of rape to bring that in there. But in other points, yeah, I just didn't see it as as useful as other frames that I was deploying, I guess. Okay, so let's talk about sex talk, Mm. this kind of words that you use to pull together the 
I'm quoting you here, diverse references to sex, sexual morality, deviance, and normalcy in publications, archive documents, and visual sources. So earlier you mentioned this idea of pushing against assumptions about a silence with respect to Algeria post-1962 that lasts, I mean, as the narrative goes, lasts until about the 1990s. And so, yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about what sex talk means, what's included in it, how you're thinking about this as a history of sexuality. And yeah, your choice of sex talk as the way to refer to the material you're exploring in the book. Well, A, I think I made a mistake in not making sex talk the second term uh, in the title. Huh. I, th- I mean, I use sex for a couple of reasons, but I just, someone, I was talking to someone about it last week. I should have used sex talk because I think it is one of the crucial things the book is trying to do. Mm-hmm. So sex talk for me, as I try to map it out, is, is an evidentiary category uh, that has some definition around the ways that it is either positioned in publications or texts that are explicitly sexual or sexualized, pornography uh, being one crucial category of this or one right. subset of this, or that explicitly grapples with questions of sex, sexuality, abnormality, that, that list that you just read that's in the book. Yeah. And one of the things that I was struck by as I began to look at such materials uh, is how rich they were uh, in information about, in this case, the aftermath of the Algerian war. It's not a surprise, I think, that they talk a lot. This type of source has a lot to say about the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the reason it's so easy to access in the 60s, in particular the 1970s, is the disappearance uh, of all series of forms of censure, uh, so that you get of censorship. Uh, so that censure, censure remains, but censorship in its official forms, uh, so that you get the first explicit pornographic films, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, magazines with nude photos uh, that don't have to go under the name of nudists or naturists in the early 1970s. So there's an explosion of this material. Uh, we know. Uh, from various other examples, you know, how popular such films could be in this moment, a number of big productions, uh, international films, as well as Hollywood films, but the international films, like I talk a lot about uh, the Daniel Tango à Paris, uh, were just massively mm-hmm. popular or drew a lot of attention these years. And then in a real a renewal of popular interest in sexology, pornography, explicit movies and explicit books, novels, but also studies, popular studies, popular discussion, the newspapers. So there's tons of stuff at this time. Right. Uh, but then I was struck by how much there was there that showed us the real impact of the Algerian war, of decolonization, uh, of anti-colonial rebellion and revolution, of efforts violent in particular to stop those. So it's an attempt to kind of give some delimitation to the types of materials I look at, uh, which are very, which very broadly, mm-hmm. uh, but also to point people like there's just a lot to be said also, but about more than sexuality or sexual identities. Uh, and it's part of the reason I think of this book as not necessarily being a history of sexuality. Uh, and that's another reason why sex is in the title. Mm. Uh, there's a question about sex uh, and how sex is being talked about, why people are talking about it, the various uses that are being made of it uh, that don't just resonate with the emergence of sexuality, you know, as Michel Foucault is writing about sure. in that very moment. The way that you characterize, you know, your connection of these histories of empire and histories of sex and a kind of pushing against previous historiographies that haven't connected to these things, you you coined this, I'm assuming you coined this <laughs> idea of vanilla history that you're working against in this book. Could you say a little bit about what vanilla history is and what you mean by positioning yourself against it? Yes. So it's not sure if it's a chicken or egg thing, but it's certainly... You know, when I was looking at this sexual material, uh, whether it was pornographic films, magazines, sexology, etc., there was a lot of discussion of North Africans, of so-called Arabs, of people of, you know, notably Maghrebis, but notably Algerians, etc., but a lot of people of color and involved in these things too, involved in making action and making decisions and making claims just books like Les Ambassadeurs by Nasser Kotteri, which is really has a steep set of commentaries on different sexual stereotypes that North African men have to confront uh, in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, this comes out in 75. It's widely debated. We've completely forgotten about it. Atal Ben Jaloun and the plus de solitude uh, about uh, problems of uh, sexual insufficiency uh, among North African immigrants in France. So that were, this was a giant bestseller. So the, all of these actors, all of the role, many of the roles that people of North African origin uh, in particular 
we're playing in French history have been wiped away. Mm -hmm. We don't know about them. We don't know about these texts. We don't know about these interventions by theorists, by artists, by uh, directors, by authors. And at the same time, we don't we don't pay attention to the kind of dirty messiness uh, of sex. Mm -hmm. So we want to talk about sexual identities and we don't want to talk about what does it mean to have, you know, to talk about anal sex. We could talk about oral, all sorts of detailed forms that were really present at the time in the mm -hmm. 70s, but that also have to be taken into account if we want to do a history that speaks to what was being said, that indicates, that gives us a lot of evidence then of perhaps how people were experiencing things, how they understood what they called experience, uh, et cetera. So this double framing, vanilla, i.e., let's talk about it as if sex wasn't really happening. Uh, let's talk about sexuality as if it's not really linked to particular acts in people's mm -hmm. minds at the very least, and how this connects with a history that wipes away how much what we could call people of color, problematic term as well, uh, but how much people, notably from North Africa, did and mattered uh, to people in France in the 60s and 70s. I wanted to put these things together. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting in French, uh, the term was we ended up using was histoire conventionnelle, because uh, huh. of course the vanilla term also resonates with the French vanilla of our ice cream flavors right. at least in North America. <laughs> so, <laughs> so vanilla sex obviously resonates with discussions from you know SBDSM and other sure. uh, parts of the world. So Todd, let's talk a bit about the structure of the book, the kind of architecture here. Um, so you've got these first two chapters that look at the far right and the, the kind of processing of the loss and the not processing of the loss of Algeria through uh, sex talk and, and in particular fixation with the sexuality of, uh, of Arab men. And I really liked, I found this really helpful, the way that you uh, characterized this as the move from defending French Algeria to resisting Algerian France. Um, so yeah, could you tell us a little bit about those first two chapters and what you're trying to argue here uh, with respect to how the far right deals with defeat uh, through the question of sex? Uh, so this is, yeah, the two chapters uh, go basically chronologically. Mm -hmm. uh, one starts really in 62 uh, and goes, it has a little bit on 61, I think as well, mm -hmm. but goes to 68. And it's really the development of a particular language uh, around on the far right, among far right theorists, in the far right press, uh, in the face of defeat uh, and their efforts to explain this defeat. And additionally, and this is crucial, to explain how when they lost, they lost defending an insistent position that Algerians were French, that all Algerians were French. So the very explicitly racialized version of French identity or of European identity comes into play. Uh, and this is sex proves incredibly crucial. This allows me to also kind of somewhat map out two tendencies or kind of four tendencies, two binaries or binomes uh, on the far right. One is between uh, nationalists and nationals. Mm. Uh, and so nationalists are people that defend the French nation and nationals are people that defend the European nation. Uh, and this right. becomes increasingly important. And a second division, which was more long-term uh, and structured the far right's obsession with masculinity. Uh, historically, since the late 19th century, the far right in France, like elsewhere, had been particularly attentive to the idea that the people, the masses, were incapable of being masculine, truly virile, because like other things in modern society, they were hysterical. Mm -hmm. So they were by definition female, incapable of true rationality, of true decision-making, of true leadership. Uh, in the 1930s, and here I'm drawing heavily from Kevin Passmore's work, and I think it's just really smart, uh, he points out, and others, I'm thinking of Sandrine Sanos too, mm -hmm. uh, point out of the possibility of the 1930s as a moment when the far right, certain people in the far right begin to theorize the possibility of leading the French people towards true masculinity. You get nationals versus nationalists, uh, you get this vision of what type of masculinity is possible. Like in both cases, the far right needs to embody true masculinity and show the nation the way forward because anything else is chaos, uh, femininity, irrationality. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in that. And then how this allows the emergence of a version of what happened in Algeria that is historical, that has a historical depiction of how Algeria and its defeat resulted from male failure. 
The Algerian war was lost because of France's failure to be truly masculine. And what won was an aberrant form of masculinity, animal in its framing, Mm. that was typical, according to them, of Algerians. Uh, The second chapter focuses really on May 1968. Mm -hmm. Uh, May 1968, as I kind of the ironic uh, mention that I begin with, is that the far right was eager eagerly awaiting May 68, uh, because it was the 10th anniversary of May 58, uh, when Charles de Gaulle came to power uh, in this in a coup d'etat, which overthrew the Fourth Republic and announced the Fifth Republic. Uh, But what I try to show in this moment is how the far right's hatred of the Gaullist regime leads them many on the on the far right to celebrate the, uh, the 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 events of May 68, before relatively quickly turning and fixating on the aberrant masculinity of the protesters, uh, the mm-hmm. term that they endlessly kind of bring out is mine uh, twinks to talk about the men, right. uh, they highlight the women, again, this is like the petroleurs uh, in far right or reactionary framings of you know, incapacity to be truly revolutionary, but yet dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so they'll begin to turn to other forces on the right to re-engage with the party of order uh, in, in, in big terms, if you will. And they do this in part by foregrounding this Algerian invasion of France. Uh, so that kind of brings to a close more or less, uh, you know, the, those two chapters. Uh, and again, sets the stage to the next two chapters, uh, which are about, you know, which focuses on questions of sexual liberationists, but notably around gay liberation. So the first four chapters are fairly chronological, uh, you know, beginning in 62, focusing on 68, uh, then focusing on the early 70s with a heavy attention to the homosexual front for revolutionary action, uh, but larger questions of sexual liberation and gay liberation. And their attempt of this group, particularly the FA, but others around them, to think of Arab men as allies uh, and to make claims about the revolutionary potential of gay liberation because of the sexual grounds on which this supposed alliance between Arab men in France and gay men in France uh, is taking place, that this Mm -hmm. sexual connections, uh, that actual sex acts, sex relationships are, they claim, constant, uh, and this sets up these possibilities, both to understand how sex and sexuality work in political and historical terms, uh, but also to make connections that could benefit and give lessons to the entire French left. So the next... Um, I guess chapters five through nine, then those next five uh, chapters deal with prostitution and white slavery, sodomy and rape, how some of the racialized fears of the colonial era kind of make a comeback in this period. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah. So the first chapter on prostitution begins right after uh, World War II with the so-called Maastricht Law, the supposed end of the regulationist uh, French Mm -hmm. prostitution model, uh, which in fact doesn't really end uh, until the early 1960s, until 1960-61 in the laws at least, uh, and then goes up through. So the first chapter then deals really with the Algerian War, uh, the Algerian Revolution, the years ahead before it. There's too much to say, I think, about what goes on here. Sure. But then I'm really interested in how the Algerian war, as it's happening, uh, is being framed in reference to prostitution quite insistently, first by commentators on the far right, people like Jean-Marie Le Pen uh, in the National Assembly, but also by social Catholics who are fighting to abolish mm-hmm. prostitution. Again, the far right plays a bigger role here, but this framing of the Algerian revolution as explicable through prostitution uh, is quite striking to me. And so I wanted to kind of highlight that. So the most obvious example that might make sense to people uh, is that the far right insistently presents, and many and I, many newspapers and other discussions, notably after the war, but during it too, will hook on to this, that Ali Lapointe, so Ali Lapointe, who people might know from the Battle of Algiers, mm-hmm. uh, who was a key figure in uh, the uh, autonomous regions kind of so-called Battle of Algiers uh, on the FL, uh, for the FLN is presented in the film as a small-time thief who becomes in prison a nationalist and then becomes a nationalist leader uh, mm-hmm. in the struggle to free Algeria. The insistent frame, re- reframing of him is that he was a former pimp. Right. And that he was a pimp. And so this not only leads to he was a former pimp, and this is crucial, but he probably is still a pimp. Uh, so that there's a depiction ah, yeah. of that this is actually a battle among different pimps uh, to control the prostitution market. Uh, and then another story that has gotten enormous traction among supposedly his, his, his serious historians, I have difficulty saying the word, um, <laughs> is that 
prostitution, money from prostitution in metropolitan France was the primary finance mechanism for the FLA. Right. And the pimp becomes insistently linked to Algerians, uh, to North Africans across the period. So those are some of the things I kind of wanted to trace out um, in that first chapter uh, before moving back to the ways that other forms of prostitution or references to prostitution take place uh, in the second chapter. And those are more later on. So in the late 60s and 70s. So here I'm particularly interested uh, in the so-called maison d'abattage. That is these uh, butcher houses, uh, these places where really miserable sexuality uh, is supposedly taking place in a prostitutional environment where it's, you know, five francs for five minutes or less. uh, And that this is depicted as needed by or required by North African immigration in France. Um, um, and you, you really get to see the prefects and others making strange and, and you know, crazed claims about we need prostitution because of North African men and their deep, you know, their sexual desires. Uh, and then it leads into a discussion of how the white slave trade uh, has become deeply linked uh, to Algeria in particular, North Africa more broadly, uh, and shapes a number of discussions. Uh, and so I end here with uh, Edgar Morin's uh, La Rumeur d'Orléans, The Rumor of Orleans, which is published in 1969. It's about an intense moment of anti-Semitism, of this rumor that Jews who own these stores, these clothing stores in the center of Orléans, uh, are trapping and trapping and drugging and sending to North Africa uh, these little gr- young, young girls uh, to be prostitutes. So it's the white slave trade in its classic form. I'm trying to show these different moments then, this idea of prostitution as feeding the Algerian revolution and being perhaps responsible for France's defeat there. Uh, This idea of the pimp as this other form of invasion that's Mm -hmm. happening, of these challenges, male incapacity, this French male incapacity to resist. How come the French pimps are not able to resist the invasion uh, of the Algerian pimps? And then this idea that because of this large mass of you know, immigrant workers or of North Africans or of Arabs or of Algerians that France has let in, it needs to allow this other form of prostitution or there'll be a real risk of rape. This is explicitly clay- claimed by all sorts of right. politicians. And then the white slave trade. And in all of these, I'm intrigued by how a language that was kind of initiated and pushed by the far right is constantly being echoed by social Catholic anti-prostitution campaigners. So how they take up, this is a group of people who are explicitly anti-racist. Many and most have been anti-colonial. We're against the conduct of the Algerian war, not necessarily for independence, but um, but play an intriguing role. Jean Celes uh, is a key figure here. Mm -hmm. uh, And how they begin to kind of endlessly repeat these forms of highly pejorative, wrong uh, stereotypes about North African men, about Arab men too. Um, so in the seventh chapter, you're looking at, uh, you're, you're sort of zooming in on this question of sodomy. Do you want to tell us about the kind of key yes. argument that you're making in this in this chapter? Yeah, so the key argument is that the act of sodomy in the early 70s appeared to be a propitious site to rethinking power, how power worked. Mm. This is, again, one thing it's trying to do is help us contextualize uh, Michel Foucault's choice uh, to place this question of sodomy uh, at the heart of the Volonté du Pouvoir, the History of Sexuality, Volume 1. Mm-hmm. As I note, uh, in the 70s, when people said sodomy, they meant anal sex. Uh, so when you know, Foucault has this fa- famous phrase, offsided phrase, about you know, this utterly um, uh, undefinable category. That's not the phrase, but that's a paraphrase of it. <laughs> um, you know, sure. This utterly confused category of sodomy. And I'm like, this time it always meant anal sex. Uh, and so I try to show that all of these other theorists, again, not just in France, but particularly in France, uh, Theorists, artists, directors, writers, and political actors, so notably the FARC, were fixated on sodomy uh, as a way to make claims about how power works. So at a really basic level, this was a leftist argument uh, about moving beyond the failed fixation on the nobility of the working class, the types of arms that had been presumed to lead to revolutionary victory had failed, uh, and so that they needed to be ready to use uh, more dirty weapons, if you will, that is to have a revolution. And so here, the use of terrorism by the FLN was one reference, but the idea that other forms of ignoble actions might be something that were in fact possible, in fact made it possible to reverse the existing situation. And sodomy was particularly propitious, anal sex, 
because it was presumed to be reversible. That is one person who could be both sodomizer mm -hmm. and sodomized. You can see the male framing of this, uh, the kind of, you know, again, deeply sexist sure. understanding of how power would be thought. Uh, so I'm really intrigued by this and try to map it out so we get a sense of this discursive field in which Foucault is participating, as well as kind of bringing things to a far more interesting level uh, than what's happening here. Uh, but also to see the particular ways that this sex act uh, is linked up in France in particular to North Africans, to Algerians, to so-called Arabs. So there's a lot going on uh, in this. And, you know, one of the key texts, uh, perhaps unexpectedly, is, is uh, but I've mentioned it already, is uh, Le Dernier Tango à Paris, The Last Tango in Paris, uh, mm -hmm. which is, I originally looked at as a kind of international film that would show us uh, how much sodomy was being used to think about power. And in fact, I came to see, as soon as I saw it for the first time in many, many years, that the Algerian Revolution and anti-Arab racism in France, when it was being made, were directly referenced in the film. And in fact, important yeah. to it. And notably important to it, the way that it uses anality. Uh, so again, this for me, it's the keystone chapter to really highlight that at this very moment that Foucault is theorizing a shift from acts to identities is something that happened in the past. In fact, there's an enormous discussion of act, of this particular sexual act. Uh, at the very moment that the historians tell us that this hetero-homo binary is structuring how we understand things, that this sexual act is at the heart of a set of political discussions uh, that see it as political. People are responding to it. You know, I had to bring in uh, Alan Finkelkraut and Pascal Bruckner, who, who call for this kind of you know, snowy white form of sodomy uh, that will embrace the distinction between men and women uh, is their, their kind of argument. Uh, but against the kind of Arab sodomy is the heart of this more revolutionary or more radical uh, claims, at least, about what was possible in thinking about and potentially, and potentially engaging in sodomy. And so, again, part of the effort here is to do, as, if possible, the history of a sexual act, uh, mm -hmm. to kind of dive into references, claims, how people are being told to think about it, how people are being told that they can do it more sets of explanations in popular in the popular press, uh, in the kind of new sexual advice press, the sexological press, the pornographic press, uh, as well as in political texts. And this chapter had also emerged uh, originally as part of a chapter that would be both about rape uh, and sodomy. Uh, I felt like I needed to grapple in some ways with questions of violence uh, mm -hmm. around the end of the French Empire, around the Algerian Revolution and the Algerian war and particularly massive French repression, uh, kind of consistent use of torture. So at first I thought thinking them together would be useful. Uh, it ended up being, there's just was so much stuff to say about both uh, that, that the sodomy chapter ended up being hived off uh, into a separate one. The other thing that needs to be mentioned that I try to grapple with uh, in the ninth chapter or the, I guess the eighth chapter, some chapter, the eighth chapter is that looking at the Arab man angle of discussions about rape really only gets to, you know, one aspect of what's happening here. Uh, and there's much more to be said uh, sure. about feminism uh, in these years, and notably about anti-rape activism uh, than what I'm doing. But I do think, you know, I think I had something. <laughs> and so the, the way that, that I try to do that is to have, there's two chapters uh, on rape. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that decision to separate this part of the book into rape as metaphor and rape as act, both in the 1970s. So the rape as metaphor ended up chapters seem to me necessary to really draw attention to how questions of rape were being raised in these larger, largely non-feminist circles on the left, uh, notably on the parts of the far left, increasingly in places like the new uh, daily newspaper Libération, the Nouvelle Obs, uh, Nouvelle Observateur, etc., uh, kind of left uh, in general sense that would become the PS uh, at this time, the Parti Socialiste but was being raised less to talk about women being raped by men uh, as feminists wanted us to focus on what was really happening in large numbers, but the use of rape to tar or incriminate or castigate North African men so that sexual harassment and sexual violence, but rape in particular, many people on the left were claiming in these early 19, in the early 1970s were the typical way that French anti-Arab racism expressed itself. This was different than the ways that anti-Black racism or anti-Vietnamese or other forms of racism expressed. This was mm. what was particular to the ways that Algerians and North Africans were being targeted. So m accusations of rape became this metaphor to talk about the unfairness 
the difficulties that North African men, immigrant workers, Algerians, so-called Arabs, had to encounter, had to confront in France. Uh, and the most kind of classic French uh, example of this is Dupont la Joie, you know, one of Isabelle Huppert's first films. I think it's 1974, you know, uh, makes a lot, a big splash. Um, and in which uh, this North African, this Algerian man is unjustly accused of rape, is killed by a mob, a lynch mob, he's lynched. And Isabelle Huppert's rape is shown. She plays the young girl who's uh, mm. first attacked and then killed, raped and killed. Uh, by her parents' friends, uh, with whom they always vacation at this camping, you know, this camping car, like this a caravan kind of campground uh, in the south of France. We see nothing ever from Isabel Pierre's point of view, but her character is raped and killed. But the injustice, what can't be said in this story, and there are other stories that I try to show about this uh, that, that repeat this idea, what can't be shown is how this French sexual jealousy, fixation, and racism against Algerians and so-called Arabs devours the situation, leads to the death of this innocent Algerian man, uh, and is what needs to be exposed. There are mm -hmm. government reports about this. There are numerous other novels and discussions, and there's a lot of popular discussion. And it does work. It's both based on a real fact. Uh, like I show, mm -hmm. I delve into police archives uh, who are constantly investigating questions, claims from people, uh, other French people, their constituents, you know, or, or their uh, people they serve, that why aren't you doing something about this massive number of North Africans, of Algerians in particular, who are raping our women of her sexual harassment? And they keep every single year they do an investigation and they keep coming back and saying, this is just not true. It doesn't hold up in any way. You know, they have a very expansive definition of who is North African since 1947, as far as I can tell. I mean, what I traced is the police records use this term without linking it to a nationality. Uh, these are people mm -hmm. that they identify as North Africans. Uh, and this leads, there's some real problems in the archives around this. Uh, so for example, just really briefly, I just want to point out that uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in ways, in response to controversies around October 61, uh, the, Paris, the, the police de Paris, their archives will give you access to any criminal case involving an Algerian during the war. And this is astounding. That is just, yeah. I mean, there's just a complete violation of these people's privacy in the name of historical accuracy around a, you know, a, a, a historiographical or historical debate about what happened uh, in terms of the oppression or the repression of Algerians. There's a lot of things that are happening. The archives are very telling here. There's a real problem. Uh, but I am also intrigued how this silences feminist efforts to bring rape as a thing, as an action uh, right. into public discussion. So I do try to show quite clearly how deeply connected uh, French feminists in the 1970s, this second wave, the MLF, uh, and particularly the most radical fringes of it, how deeply connected they were to this Algerian heritage, to the Algerian man, to some this heroic vision of the Algerian revolution is something that had upended France and shown it as a model that they were using to how to upend the world. So I particularly focus on the use of UU, uh, the, the kind of summon, the cry associated with uh, North African women, Berber, Arab, Jewish, etc., and other explicit references they make. Uh, and the Algerian war was just like others on the left, you know, absolutely foundational for them and how they analyze their struggle. So then in the second chapter, uh, Rape as Act, I really focus on how feminists are able to impose a discussion of rape as an act. And part of this is how difficult it is to get out of thinking about rape as metaphor. Um, and so I you know, re reference other feminist uh, historians who have worked on this, of kind of the ways that, uh, you know, for example, after World War II, uh, the Soviet invasion of Germany, uh, you know, the massive rapes that accompanied the liberation of Germany from Nazism was quite quickly, there were explicit references to these rapes of German women by Russian soldiers or other kind of occupying soldiers that really quickly shifted into claims that the United that you know the United States and the Soviet Union were raping Germany uh, again that reduced things as these discussions nece almost necessarily seem to do to debates about men versus men mm -hmm. so that rape is something that is really about men not just men as actors but men as the real victims uh, the men whose honor has been sullied uh, whose daughter has been sullied taken from them or whose husband the husband right. who's lost his you know you get the point and the the success of feminists in the 70s of focusing on rape as an act that men overwhelmingly subjected to overwhelmingly women as the victims uh, is really quite impressive because it had to really mm -hmm. rip it out of this deep metaphorical work that it constantly did. So this is part of why I really wanted to highlight metaphor and act 
Uh, you could see like both the interesting kind of insightful parts of the left-wing criticism of rape, unjust accusations of rape. But it's also part of this larger story about how rape gets used to talk metaphorically, and we can avoid talking about actual damage to particular bodies. So in the conclusion to the book, Todd, you bring us to 1979 and then all the way to 2016, uh, the period when you were finishing the book. So just to start out with, could you tell us a little bit about the impact of the Iranian Revolution and the significance of 79 as an endpoint for the project? Yes. The Iranian Revolution plays an important role because of what it allows me to talk about, but also because I think it makes sense of certain disconnects between the period I'm talking about uh, and subsequent era, the subsequent era, particularly more recently. Uh, obviously, the Iranian Revolution is not about Arabs. Um, what it does mm -hmm. connect it to this, our understandings of Arabs or Arab men, so-called, uh, is, of course, the question of Islam. And so the Iranian Revolution then is taken up immediately upon its victory in February of 1979, when the Shah leaves, what will become the Islamic Republic is established. Mm -hmm. In France, the left-wing response to the Iranian Revolution's victory is to target, on the one hand, the so-called forced veiling of women, mm -hmm. and on the other, what they term the execution of homosexual men. The dissipation, the collapse of this Arabophile, this vision of the heroic Algerian man, which I try to trace out throughout the 70s, on the gay liberation side, on the side of feminists, uh, which crystallizes around debates about sexual violence, really comes to the fore in this moment in early 1979, where the West then emerges not as a space that can learn from other understandings of how the world operates, notably around questions of gender and sexuality, that the Algerian revolution stands in for the Arab revolution, uh, and that people on the left, certain people on the left, a number of people on the left, notably among so-called gay liberationists, among the new MLF mm -hmm. feminists are looking to this model to inspire them, to inspire the West, to inspire France, to change, to become more liberated. Uh, that has kind of disappeared as something that can be effectively used because it depends on a stereotype, a very reductive stereotype. Mm -hmm. But early 1979 allows them to come up to return to a more reassuring story, which is that the West has the answers. The West can identify those people in, in this case, Iran, who need their help, beleaguered homosexuals, beleaguered women who are being oppressed. And the types of liberation that need to be shared are and have been developed wholly in the West. So I, I try to kind of nail this home with a return to a somewhat well-known story about Foucault, uh, his own attention and interest in the Iranian revolution. Mm -hmm. And he becomes a real target uh, in particularly March and April of 1979 of criticisms from people on the left of those in general who had looked with interest at the very least, or perhaps sympathy to the Iranian revolution when it was taking place and who are now targeted as dupes, as people willing to give up the victories of notably the sexual revolution of feminism, of gay liberation, of gay rights. And what about writing this book at the moment that you were writing it through the 2010s, I guess, and how you think about this work as a history of the present. Anything you want to say about the present or the, the life of the book since it's come out? The whole story of 62 to 79 in my telling is one where masculinity, hyper virility, not just effeminate masculinity and other forms of masculinity, but a hyper virile form of masculinity is at the center of Orientalist discussions, what I call the... Uh, uh, the erotics of Algerian difference mm -hmm. in this moment. And that's so what's interesting in part is that women are not at the central, not central femininity are not at the center of these discussions. Right. Uh, and so this of course is much more crucial to how we understand Orientalism in general, and certainly what we've been living with more recently. So those two questions of women at the center uh, and Islam at the center, I think are something that allows us to think about what's different from today. It also allows us to understand how certain liberationist arguments, which again get deployed in early 1979 vis-a-vis -vis the Iranian revolution, still remain so tenacious. Defenses of women's rights and women's liberation, defenses of gay rights and gay liberation, gay lesbian liberation, uh, these things now are, can often be used. We talk about sexual nationalism. We talk about pinkwashing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So those connections are important. Uh, it's also important, I think, the fact that this was a left-wing turned and who abandoned this stereotyped vision of the heroic Algerian man or the heroic Arab man and the revolution helps us think about some of the ways that that celebration supposedly anchored visions of such men as violent, as aggressive. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is part of what inspired people on the left 
including feminists, including gay liberationists, to look to this as a heroic revolutionary model, a form of masculinity that could lead to change. But it was tied up in a violent revolution. It was tied up in supposed forms of masculine affirmation and assertiveness. So I think these things also have anchored the story that we continue to have. I mean, of course, Cologne, uh, New Year's Eve 2016 is one flashpoint. Uh, The debate, the intense controversy around that critics of Kamal Daoud, the Algerian author, but then these stories of so-called Muslim, in this case, or refugees, or from the Arab world, of men as violent, as dangerous, but more importantly, of people coming from other countries. Uh, So we see that with Donald Trump's uh, announcement for the president in 2000 presidency, he was running uh, right before we talked about Mexican rapists. I mean, this story, this language, these arguments that were really articulated by people on the so-called new right in France during the late 60s and early 70s that took hold in French discussions in the early 1970s about the Arab invasion, about rape and sexual violence as the kind of key arms of this invasion. Mm -hmm. These have now become a toolbox, uh, and not just by happenstance, it's not just by context, when we know direct connections are taking place between people like Alain de Benoit, people involved in Minute, people on on the far right, with people like Steve Bannon uh, in the United States and others. Yeah. So everyone wants to know, what are you working on now? So I've published a number of articles about a project that was really more of a direct sequel in some ways to my first book, which is about uh, the set of really quota-based policies that the French came up with under the name of integration. So integrationisme. So it's an attempt to locate the emergence of integrationism and integration as a topic and an analytic category around sets of differences uh, in the 1950s, a term that we tend to associate with the 1970s and after, uh, to locate it in a transnational discussion and to show how the Algerian revolution, by forcing French officials and government office, government politicians and officials and leaders to take seriously Algeria's difference and why the Algerian revolution was happening led many of them, and in fact made it official government policy to say, the real problem in Algeria is not colonialism, it's part of France. The real problem is French racism towards so-called Muslims. And they defined Muslims, bizarrely, uh, but interestingly, not in terms of religion, but on the basis of the legal categories they had. Muslim was a core category of origin people that could trace their roots back to 1830, before the French occupation of Algeria. And they use this for a whole set of social welfare policies. Uh, So it's a really intriguing, somewhat durable moment uh, since the 90s of constant French political and scholarly and American scholarly uh, uh, certainty that France has a colorblind, you know, the United States, UK, other countries have color conscious decisions, discussions, policies, uh, once again, we see this effort to create a teleological relationship between there were Republican principles, therefore this is what Republicans think. Uh, so mine is a story about how in the midst of a confrontation with a radical movement, a revolutionary movement that insisted Algeria was different and needed not to be France in political terms, uh, French policymakers, people like François Mitterrand, Pierre Mendes France, and everyone else that was in charge, including Charles de Gaulle, Michel Debray, etc., embraced policies that said racism is the problem. Racism can be overcome through policy means. Mm-hmm. Now, this failed, and so it's been wiped away, swept away aggressively. Again, this has not just been forgotten. It's been expunged uh, right. from the historical record. But it does have durable after effects, notably in the current French social welfare system, which is, of course, right. anchored in the great universal rights-based sets of institutions and policies, you know, the Secu. SMIC, chômage, yeah. allocation familiale, but it's now mainly anchored, and this is the Fifth Republic specificity, in this whole range of social citizenship style policies, which identify legally groups in need, whether it's victims of a flood, illiterates, battered women, etc. And it was all emerged around this anti-racist effort uh, that was based in origins and that identified Muslim as a category that was explicitly not about Islam, but was about origins. Right. And that this ethnic group, Muslims, existed, and this was another element of integrationist arguments, because of French racism over time that had pushed them together and down and created this group that was oppressed. So what we're really talking about is at least a trilogy, then, of books. (laughs) Um, So 
Todd, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing this book. Oh, yes. Well, definitely happy to have finished the book and really pleased to, to, to talk to you again, Roxanne. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.